from the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house, ready to answer your questions. If you would like to uh, be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you were ever told, if you ever called another day of open line and they told you to call back on Friday and ask Colin, today is your day. Uh, if you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Charles Beery, our celebrity producer today. Matt Gubensky screening your phone calls, and Jeff Burson, magnificent person, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned, Colin Donovan. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, just sitting here admiring the uh, lovely jacket of our local Catholic high school, John Carroll, and the mascot Cavaliers. That's right. My kids both graduated from John Carroll, and I have the final. Uh, I do public address for their basketball program, and we have the That'll final the regular season tonight. game uh, of the evening this evening. And as much as I enjoy it, I'm Glad it's over. <laughs> Got an email here from Lou, and he says, What does it mean that Jesus has a soul? I don't understand how a divine being could have a soul. Well, it means he is like us in all things but sin. In other words, he is a body and a soul. There are three categories of beings, uh, four if you give God his separateness, but essentially spirit, matter, and the mixed creature, uh, man, body and soul. So everything uh, in his human nature is created at the moment of his conception, and the existence of that new human being is the second person of the Trinity, what the Church calls the hypostatic union, uh, that there is in Christ a divine person, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And as uh, Fulton Sheen used to say, there is one who and two what's, God and man. And we always have to keep that around, and it settles many theological questions people have, because they ask a question like, did Jesus know who he was? Of course, he knew who he was. He was the Son of God, and he knew that from the instant of uh, of his creation. The tools of human nature developed over time, and he humanly learned and gained wisdom, as Scripture tells us, but intellectually, spiritually, uh, as soon as his soul could conceive the idea, and he knew that he was God. Um, Anita 
wants to know, why did God bring Abraham to the point of almost sacrificing Isaac? Why does God seem so different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament? Well, I'll deal with the difference rather than the unsolvable, because a lot of people, of theologians and thinkers over the years, has tried to solve the exact, you know, motivation of God there. Uh, but we can say something about that as well. Uh, so, you know, uh, what was the second part of that question again? The um, um, why is the God basically why is God so mean in the Old Testament, and uh, not so much in the New Testament? Yeah, I think the main key is something Saint Paul says that the 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 covenant, the Torah. The teaching or the law, both of those are legitimate translations, uh, was a tutor. In other words, it needed to teach Israel what holiness was all about. Many things that we see uh, in in the Old Testament have to be understood that way, and then in light of the New Testament, you you can understand the approach there. So if you look at fallen human nature as described in the book of Genesis, you can see that outside of that patriarchal line of, you know, uh, Adam to Seth down to finally to Abraham and and his descendants, uh, that the world had fallen into moral and and social chaos, uh, sin and all of those things. Not that there wasn't sin in that line as well. That's familiar. Yeah. (laughs) Look at our society today, I guess. But... Here the point is, they had to be prepared so that they could bring forth the Messiah. And the purpose of the covenant was to do that, to teach them by discipline. So something in the Old Testament, there was a lot of cases of capital punishment, for instance, for the the worst things, capital punishment. That teaches the deadliness of sin. What is the spiritual understanding of that? We would refer to mortal sin. Now, capital punishment has been used down through the centuries in the church. That's certainly true. In civil society, uh, Catholics have used that rather. But the point is, those those physical disciplines of the old covenant and all of the rigor of the laws regarding food and these other things was to teach them discipline, what constituted holiness. So it's not in the food, as Jesus said. You know, it's not the food which makes man uh, evil, eating it out of the uh, proper you know, uh, Torah provisions. But it was a way of teaching. And so those meanings are carried on, and you look at the various old things in the cult or the religion and the practice of Israel all have meaning looking forward to the Christian covenant and ultimately, of course, to the church in the way that she does things. So all of these things were preparing for Christ, and in Christ we understand those old things even that have passed away like some, some of the disciplines. Another case is the woman caught in adultery. The law was vigorous on adultery. He didn't tell the, he didn't tell the scribes and Pharisees that she couldn't be stoned. He simply elevated the thinking to not getting vengeance and justice here, but let you who is without sin throw the first stone, teaching them that love and mercy is greater than even the principle of justice. So, that's the pretty much uh, a lens through which all of these Old Testament institutions and, and situations can be understood. Preparation for the gospel, which perfects, and sometimes in perfecting, overthrows the practices of, uh, and disciplines of the Old Covenant. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Um, Brett wants to know if lying is always a mortal sin. Not always a mortal I'm sin. I'm not convinced it's always a sin, quite frankly. 
Well, it is, actually, okay. uh, if you follow the tradition. Uh, lying being to not express what you know to be true. The exception is, which also is in the tradition, is the idea of reserving some knowledge which the person, the listener, is not entitled to know. So, you know, in government, you know certain top secrets and so on. I was in the Navy. You were confided, things were confided to you. Somebody asked you, could quit, you could say, I don't know about that, anything about that. The presumption would be that these practices are well known and that therefore the other individual uh, could, 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 but not necessarily arrive at the understanding that, well, it's something he can't speak about. And probably the more uh, well-known kind of example of this, a priest who may be called before a judge or a district attorney calls him to testify, he says, I know nothing about that, meaning I know nothing I can tell you. You could surmise that he does know something about that from his from the Sacrament of Reconciliation, uh, and it may, be even, it may be even anything that aided the client. But in any case, he's not permitted to speak about it, and that fact is well-known. Those are called mental reservations, and the broad mental reservation where there is some space for knowing what is really being said is permitted. The lying, which would be a strict mental reservation, and that is where it's so far removed from what possibly could be known that the only other way of treating it, you know, uh, is to, to make it into a lie, is to call it a lie. All right, let me give you a hypothetical. Yes. Suppose it's 1942. Your name is Colin Leibowitz. <laughs> I am hiding you in the control room in this studio, and I'm sitting where I'm sitting now, and Nazi soldiers come to the door, and they say, is Colin Leibowitz in that control room? Uh, you would have to use some obfuscation other than saying either yes or no, probably, in that case. Uh, and it would, I'm not saying it's not difficult. I would say no. <laughs> and it would probably not be a big confessional matter in that instance either. See, that's the point is. The question is, is it always a mortal sin? No. Is it always wrong to do it? But I'm sure a lot of people have thought in the circumstances that, well, I, I just can't you know, say something which endangers the life of another and takes the consequences before God, which in such a case is going to be slight. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hot off the presses from EWTN Publishing this month, Everyday Miracles of Lourdes, 20 Extraordinary Experiences Along the Way to the Grotto by Marlene Watkins. She recounts 20 outstanding true stories of miracles that have occurred at Lourdes, including her own watershed healing, which inspired her to establish Our Lady of Lourdes Hospitality North American Volunteers and become its first volunteer. 
You'll also discover how we will enter heaven. It's not the way you may think. The unexpected way the oldest pilgrim and her marriage were renewed at Lourdes and much, much more. Everyday Miracles, 20 Extraordinary Experiences Along the Way to the Grotto by Marlene Watkins. Available now at EWTNRC.com by Catholic Shop EWTNRC.com. Still a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. You mentioned my John Carroll Catholic uh, pullover at the beginning of the program. Interesting fact, who do you think John Carroll Catholic High School is named after? Well, one of our founding fathers, I believe, or at least someone in his family. No. 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 Interestingly enough, really? John, John Carroll was the first bishop in the United States. Ah, that's true. Bishop of the Diocese of that's Baltimore. Right. Yeah. And uh, no, he is. It's not named after him. Interestingly enough, but I believe he was a relative of the signer. Yes, that's true. That that's is true. true. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's the school here in Birmingham is actually named after a furniture salesman who put up the money to build the initial campus, whose name just happened to be John Carroll. <laughs> I did not know. <laughs> I know. Isn't that? Isn't that's 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 funny. It's a, it's a funny little tidbit, and the school was actually under the patronage of St. John Bosco. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, we've got some Johns involved there. <laughs> there so you go. That's good. Exactly. That's to the no phones. Jacks, though. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> to the phones we go. Alex is first up today in Modesto, California, listening on EWTN.com. Alex, you are on with Colin Donovan. Oh, hello, Colin. Hello. How are you doing? Good, good. Um, so I've been talking to, uh, talking to some Jehovah Witnesses, and uh, they just left my house, uh, I would say, about 20 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking about, you know, they were talking about times and, and different times, and, and they pretty much they were saying that uh, Satan was sent to the earth on 1914. Um, and they gave me some ber- verses on how to uh, get the time right and all that stuff, but mm-hmm. it got kind of confusing. It got sure. very confusing, you know? Yeah, and... uh so I told her that pretty much for God, there's there's really no uh, no time, you know, like like we have, you know. Um, so, but I wanted to see uh, call you guys and and, and ask you for a mm-hmm. better explanation so I can explain it to them, you know. Yeah, you're you're not going to convince them. They have a a, a very pat uh, a pat teaching. Uh, it's pat until one of the prophecies isn't fulfilled, as has happened many times in history. Uh, and then it gets changed. Um, they're entirely built upon this idea. It, they, they don't have a, the Christian uh, idea, or at least the Orthodox uh, Christian idea, as even mainline Protestants still presumably have, and evangelical Protestants, of, of the Holy Trinity and the Incarnation and all of that. There was a time, believe it or not, that Michael Jackson, the singer, was was thought to be some uh, kind of an incarnation of something or other. Uh, as it turned out, <laughs> the, his his moral history uh, did not prove that point to be true. He's actually a Scientologist, wasn't he? I, I think he may have been yeah. eventually, but he was raised in a Jehovah Witnesses yeah. family. Okay. Yeah. So the, these kinds, of, they've made many predictions that the end was imminent, and so I don't think you can uh, follow that. But how, however, on the other hand, Scripture gives us a very clear a picture of it. In the Gospel of Matthew, 
uh, in the kingdom parables uh, uh, in the 20s. You can go there and start and read about the uh, the the wheat and the uh, and the tars and the and the the uh, harvest at the end, and it leads up to the account of what will take place in the destruction of Jerusalem. And that destruction of Jerusalem is sort of a model or a paradigm of what will happen at the end of the world. And, of course, we know that other things are spoken of in the, in, by Paul and others that give us ideas regarding the end. But what the Church has concluded uh, it, it is the chronology of the end, if you will, is clearly given in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and this follows the fathers and doctors of the first 600 years and later, uh, including the medieval uh, doctors of the church, in their understanding, and therefore the church sees this as something as apostolic. You know, St. Paul says, you know, not only the things that I wrote you, but also the things that I taught you. In other words, there were the things written down which made it into the scripture, which were compiled in the 300s, and finally, by about 381, we knew what the books of the, old, uh, of the scriptures would be, declared at the Synod of Rome by Pope Damasus. Augustine did the same thing in two uh, councils in North Africa. And that is consistently the list that has been used by the church. And so those same men who made those judgments and those decisions in the early church gave us not only the canon of scripture, but also the basis of the chronology of the end. We are in the troubles. Obviously, we're very much in the troubles. That's quite clear. But this is not the time of, of the Antichrist. It is not yet the time of the great apostasy. And we've had the last two popes who have declared that the full evangelization of the Gentiles hasn't taken place. Uh, Pope John Paul II uh, said this, Pope Benedict did, established the dicastery of the new evangelization uh, for the evangelization of, you might say, the first world, those who heard the gospel first, us who have fallen away in our own little mini-apostasy mini in the West. But it is only after the whole world has, the Gentiles have accepted it, and as the Catechism says, in the wake of the full number of the Gentiles— and to Jack's point, this is a time when only God knows when that will be. It is certainly not in this time. But in the wake of the full number of the Gentiles, the Jewish people will themselves come into the church. A moral, moral quantity enough that you can say that as the fullness of the Gentiles doesn't mean every single Gentile on the planet, the Jews coming in doesn't necessarily mean every, but the recognition that Christ is their Messiah as well. And the, the moral battle that both Gentile and Jew face will be with us until the end of the world. Then, after this, comes the great apostasy at some time we don't know, and in that connection will come the Antichrist and the Second Coming. So we're very far away from that. I would not take what they tell you as reasonable, there are, I don't know how many Jehovah Witnesses are, there are in the world. Is it reasonable that only, let's say it's a couple million or a few million, is it reasonable that only a few million people 2,000 years after Christ, when there are 1.5 or more billion people who, who hold to the name of Christ, that only this select number? But that's their position. 
that they are the remnant. And of course, their idea of heaven is different. Their idea of the 144,000 in the book of Revelation is very literal. Um, they're literally, that's all there is. Everybody else will be on the earth and those, uh, you know, uh, all the special ones will get the special privileges. So their ideas of the end of eschatology, as we theologians call it, are different from that of any Christian denomination. Uh, and on these matters, they are most wrong of all the things they are wrong about other than the Trinity and Christ. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Next up is John. He is a first-time caller in the great state of South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, sirs. Yeah. What's your question, John? I, I am a, I'm a, I'm a Methodist minister, but mm-hmm. I'm a faithful listener. Here's my, my question. I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, and, mm-hmm. of course, the drugs that go with it. Is there a problem in your mind of doing the breathing relaxation techniques? Uh, it, it's very close to almost, in my mind, transcendental meditation, and that mm-hmm. you sit straight and you do it for 20 minutes. If it's used to uh, ward off and not take as much medicine, do you have a problem with somebody doing this uh, mm-hmm. breathing relaxation technique? No, it's a physical technique. Now, for, for Catholics, for myself as a theologian, I, I look certainly to the uh, to Rome, and uh, I remember back when uh, Pope Benedict was still Cardinal Ratzinger working for John Paul II, they issued a document on, on, medi- on Christian meditation, and it's quite clear you can distinguish between the physical postures and, say, the spiritual meaning. This is where yoga incorporates a lot of of Eastern mystical thinking, religious thinking, into the method of doing things. In and of itself, the postures are what they are. And the benefit you wish to gain, as scientists call about biofeedback, in other words, you're training your body to relax, you're breathing, uh, it's very calmative, uh, and you can do that maybe while holding your Bible open and doing some scripture reading and turn it into a meditation as well. Praying the rosary. Pray, well, if you, you know, there's a good book by a Methodist minister on, what is it, Five, five for Sorrow, Ten for Joy. A uh, very good book you might want to get. Uh, he was a big believer. I don't think he ever became a Catholic, but he a uh, big believer in the rosary as a uh, a legitimate way of praying, and it has it can have this benefit as well. So, uh, I, I think that's got to be the distinction: the physical versus the, the the spiritual. And you're doing it for the physical benefits. You could certainly combine it with doing something uh, spiritual in in keeping with your you know pastoral office and so on, um, whether scripture or, or a, a good book, uh, maybe working on that homily for Sunday or or something of that nature. God bless you, John. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Morgan is watching on Facebook, Colin, and Mm -hmm. he wants to know, was the requirement to quote-unquote eat bread in Genesis 3.19 a significant part of God's plan of salvation? And this is kind of when he's laying down the punishment for their disobedience. Right, yeah. I, I think there are things which are anticipations of the Eucharist. 
Uh, we certainly see that in Abraham's bowing down before Melchizedek as being a high priest of God. Well, what high priesthood was Mel- Melchizedek? It's interesting that some of the rabbis theorize him to actually be Shem, and he's carrying on the primitive priesthood which uh, which Adam would have been, been have. That we're, we're thinking there would have been no religion in the garden with Adam and Eve, but in reality there was truth to be adored. And that was God. So something was uh, foreshadowed there, and we can pick it up after the break. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. We're answering a question from Morgan, who's watching us on Facebook, about uh, uh, the, how do I want to say it, the ramifications of Adam and Eve's sin. Yeah, and and that text says, in the sweat of your brow or your face, as this particular bystander Catholic edition version has it, uh, you shall eat bread. You know, I think it it has perhaps a twofold significance because our first thought might run to the Eucharist. And it might be because when we say the Our Father, we say, give us this day our daily bread. Now, the Church generally teaches that that has the meaning of the superabundance of the Eucharist. In other words, the Eucharist is the ideal fulfillment of that word. It's not the only usage. We use it in very common parlance. But I think what it could be referring to is that here bread may have a broader meaning of sustenance and not be absent some, you know, contact in the mind of God that will point us through Melchizedek and away from the bloody sacrifices, which basically the Jews, God gave the Jews because they wanted to be like their neighbors um, and not because that was his original intention that in the New Covenant, we, we don't do that. We have the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so I think you can draw that link, but I think it's also possible simply to see in this that you will gain whatever, whatever sustenance you need to eat will now be done by the sweat of the brow, by work, by labor, and not be given with the ease. And the greatest reason is their original conditions of justice and the plenitude at, was re- taken away from them at that point. Uh, Tim is a first-time caller in Kerrville, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Tim, did you get any of that ice? We got a ton of that ice, and I think the reason for all the power outages here is, is the oak trees that were, you know, yeah. there's plentiful oak trees in yeah. central Texas, and they were mm-hmm. they were cracking and falling on, on lines because we had that on our, we live on a ranch, and we had half of them break and, and fall. Well, we've so been praying really for you all for sure. What's yeah. your question today for Colin? Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I was listening out here. We're, on, we're out here working on a ranch. I was just listening to the radio out here, and I had a question from actually my brother-in-law, who is not a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And he was like, and I couldn't answer it. I'm not educated enough in this. I am a Roman Catholic and grew up that way. But his question was, what's the difference between the Orthodox uh, Catholic, or you know, Orthodox religion, Eastern Orthodox, and the Roman Catholic, and mm-hmm. why did they split? And... Um, I'd really like to hear the answer to sure. that myself. Because yeah. 
Well, um, in the original church, there there was, of course, no such split. We had the apostles uh, going to different places and established churches. We know that Peter was first in Antioch, and so he was uh, bishop of, uh, uh, of Antioch. And uh, being the chief of the apostles, he would have been looked to as, you might say, he was the pope was in Antioch in those days. He went on to Rome, and this is where he and Paul both were martyred, and they are collectively called, uh, referred to as the founders of the church in Rome uh, by, by the Roman people since, since those days in the 60s AD. And Peter was, a, was there, the, the, the bishop. And so his successor, uh, Linus, and we had others, we mentioned them in the Mass, actually, that uh, here was the Apostolic See as it came to be known, and you can find the references to that uh, in Irenaeus in writing in the second century, saying, if you have any doubts of what the true teaching is, you look to the Apostolic See. So Rome had that from the very beginning because of Peter's founding of it, uh, as he had been in Antioch, he had this, this primary role of being the, the chief see, uh, the chief place. Now, for the longest time, that was uh, the way it was, but what happened in, of course, in the uh, 300s when uh, Constantinople was founded by Constantine, he wanted, an, there, were, there actually ended up being two emperors at some point for the east and for the west. He wanted to establish a base there in what today would be Turkey. And so what they did is the, the, or the Orthodox Church, there were already churches there. They were already in communion with everybody else where there were churches, whether they were in uh, Egypt or Rome or uh, wherever the faith had been taken. But they developed a particular style. We call it the, the, the Byzantine style. And so we sometimes refer to the rites that derive from it as Byzantine rite, even though they may go under different names, like the Ruthenians or the Romanian Orthodox or others. They're all using a similar rite that goes back to Constantinople and the establishment of, a, of, a, of an imperial center there. And, of course, that meant that there were certain rivalries between the two cities, but Rome was still the see of Peter and the place where Peter established. And the theologies of the of in Rome and the theology in the Orthodox and all of the principal points were agreement, but it developed in different ways there. Uh, in in the West, it developed in a very I wouldn't say rationalistic, but an effort to go deeper and deeper into the meaning and set out categories of things that can be said positively. It's a uh, positive theology is what it's called. And you do that by analogy to what we know about God himself. And on the basis of uh, this theology of analogy, you say things not only about God, but about the great mysteries of the faith. In the East, they they took a different position. They, they sort of said, well, we can't really say anything positive about God, so we will concentrate on the mystery, and we will, you know, we will see where that goes. And so you get two different approaches to theology. But the breakup in 1054 was political more than it was anything else. There had been some drifting apart of the theologies and the way theology is done. That's to be true. But communion existed, and you had a pope who sent two legates to Constantinople to rebuke the patriarch of Constantinople. He interrupts a mass, and he lays letters of excommunication on the altar. 
There are so many of these kind of ecclesiastical political things regarding our relations with the Orthodox on both sides, but Rome with its shares of fault, that these are largely both the causes and the continuing pain (laughs) that the Orthodox in particular feel with regard to Rome. Because otherwise, you know, the last number of popes and archbishops of Constantinople have spoken of each other as brothers in the faith, as sister churches. Uh, The faith is on all the positive things in divine revelation are, 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 are the same. On maybe some of the details, like the, the, the Orthodox churches would generally only speak of Mary as the All-Holy One, upon Hagios. We've gone on and we've defined the Immaculate Conception, didn't consult the Orthodox. It's still true, by the way, but this, this lack of a relationship over the centuries has produced that the fact that Roman theology has advanced in areas where the Orthodox were not inclined to go beyond a simple statement of the truth. Mary was all holy. End of story. We said, well, she's all immaculately conceived. Another consequence of that is the declaration of the dogma of the Assumption, even though they believe in the Dormition and essentially the same thing. So you have these issues that are more definitional and neuralgic issues, and then all this political history that we've all to get belong. But otherwise, we're brothers in the faith, and we stand against the, uh, you know, the world hand in hand. And God willing, in some day, as Jesus prayed at the Last Supper, where he prayed that you may all be one, all the successors of the apostles, east and west, will be, will be one. Now, the fact of the matter is, Rome has the successor of Peter, and that's not mashed potatoes. That's an important part of Christ's supernatural constitution of the church and will always be there. But as John Paul II said in his uh, encyclical Ut Unum Sint, that they may be one, uh, he spoke, speaks uh, about the way in which the Pope exercises his authority. There are ways it might be done that would be satisfying to the Orthodox, rather than having sort of the Pope sort of parachute in and say, you've got to do this out of the other thing. We don't do this generally with the Eastern churches. The Eastern churches in communion with Rome, they have synodality and the things they've had for, you know, over a thousand years. But we're sort of talking that way today ourselves. Uh, I'm not sure we know how to do it, but we're talking that way like that's something we should be doing. Uh, but they've actually been doing it and concretely and involving lay people without compromising the faith. So hopefully we will come to be able to do that kind of thing, too. But these are all the kinds of questions, and some of them don't seem very large, I think, to most people. Uh, but the most important is the same, same love of the Lord, and especially the love of Our Lady, which is strong, strong in the East. Uh, with all the sadness going on in the Ukraine, it's, there's nothing, you know, you can say nonetheless that the, most, uh, the, the church which most manifests at least their love for Our Lady, it might very well be the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, we wish they would manifest it in love of neighbor, uh, especially Ukrainian neighbors, and, and maybe before this is all over, they will, and we can hope and pray for that. Patrick is another first-time caller in Washington, D.C., listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Patrick, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hey, good afternoon, Colin. So, quick question. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a uh, cat. 
I'm a, a catechist and a trial lawyer, actually. And I uh, have junior high, junior high kids and CCD, CCF. And I'm usually able to answer most of the tough questions. Why is there evil? How can mm-hmm. loving God? You know, all those kinds of things. The one, one kid really stumped me a couple weeks ago. He asked me, he said, essentially, how can a loving God, who knows all, necessarily, or create souls he knows necessarily, will go to hell? In other words, God knows all. God mm-hmm. creates all souls. And he creates souls he necessarily knows will go to hell. Why create a soul if you know it's going to hell? So uh, he'll grow up and have children. Uh, I assume he doesn't yet, hopefully. Uh, I'll ask you this question. You have children, I'm presuming. Um, if you were told that uh, A, B, and C child were, were going to go to hell, would your first solution to that be to kill them right now? See, it's only a, the time thing. We can come to learn this answer, especially when they go bad and they do evil things. Um, it doesn't mean we don't love our children. So God creates human being, and in giving them freedom, he makes that choice to allow them to go to make the choice for him or against him, just as parents discover that their children may hate them at some point in their lives, uh, may become evil people. Uh, and you just knew, you know, well, if you had known that when you conceived the child, we said, not this one, not this one. I think it's sort of similar. And that's a very, I think, human way uh, of looking at it. God, We are God's children. We use that expression. We use it especially because of baptism, because it gives us a relation not with an indifferent and personal God, but with the Father in the Holy Trinity. And so children in the you know, re- very real sense, by, by grace as, uh, and by adoption rather than by nature as, as Jesus is. And so in that context, he could not not create any of his children. So in the will to creation is the knowledge to imbue nature with the powers of creation, give to man freedom, which Adam and Eve from the get-go, misused, and then bring good out of the evil that might come from those free moral decisions made down through history. So, in the end, he has the same had the same problem we have. You only love those that will be perfect as you are perfect and not rebel against you, as we presumably never rebel against our parents. Um, and so, that's, you know, that's the choice God made. But he gave us our freedom, and we can make of that what we will. Uh, that may not be satisfying to him, but I think the point is you would be envisioning a world in which we're all just, in a sense, robots with a guaranteed uh, outcome, and we're following that more as marionettes than as uh, free persons. So that's the choice he made. He chose to give us our freedom and with it the consequences that freedom uh, would, would create. Be sure to check out Catholic Answers Live, the best of episode on Sunday night at 6 Eastern time. Cy Keller takes your calls and talks with some of the leading apologists and theologians, including Colin Donovan. In the church today, EWTN is the exclusive radio home for Catholic Answers Live. That's the best 
of Catholic Answers Live, Sunday night, 6 Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is George, another first-time caller, driving through the great state of Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. George, you are on with Colin Donovan. Colin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the question I have is, uh, it's also a personal question, but it's it's a theological one, and it I want what I would like to get is your your understanding. I'm Eastern Orthodox, and I share. Mm-hmm. Lord have mercy, do I share in your prayer for the reunion of the uh, of the Eastern Orthodox and the, and the, uh, the Roman churches? Glory to God, uh, that will happen soon. Anyway, um, the question is on salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is salvation in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and uh, 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 reflected in the Psalms, the joy of thy salvation and all right. of that. And there's salvation in the New Testament. Mm-hmm which uh, comes uh, after baptism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, so the question is, what is the difference between Old Testament salvation and New Testament salvation? And how is that, what is the difference ontologically? Mm-hmm. And then what is the experiential difference between them? Yeah. Okay, well... Uh... I'm obviously going to be speaking in Roman Catholic categories of theology here and not Eastern, but uh, there will be something comparable because we're, we have the same fathers of the Church, um, and uh, you know even some of the other ones I know that they're in Eastern theology are those who admire Aquinas. There's you know, uh, others who don't. Uh, the great division, I think, over the imp- significance of Aquinas and his thought uh, among the Orthodox. But there are, uh, there are schools of thought that appreciate uh, some of his uh, approaches. But if you, if you go back to the Old Testament, we know that uh, the, the saying which uh, we encounter many different times during the course of the year, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as justice. The Church, if you want to parse all of that, you know, Abraham didn't just suddenly in a moment believe God. He had a disposition that was created into him by his experience and by his choices. So certain natural practical habits that he had that put him at the doorstep of belief in the supernatural sense, sort of natural belief. And in the moment that God reveals himself, Abraham believed in him and God gave him justice. Now, in looking at that, and here I'm going to use Thomistic Aquinas' perspective on this, you could see that what you have is you have those, the sort of the preambles of, preambles of justification, you know, people who are introduced to the Gospels, and they learn, and they know Catholics, or they know Christians, or they know Orthodox, and they're attracted to, to Christ. Uh, the Church wouldn't say, and Aquinas wouldn't say, that they have supernatural faith, but they have the credibility, the reasoned faith grows in them to the point that when they come to the Church and say, as Ethiopian eunuch did, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, is Jack, or in the New Testament, as Jack knows, and they say, you know, well, teach me, and what is to keep me from being baptized? Because it's the way has been prepared, and justice has given them through baptism. How was justice given to Abraham? 
Aquinas's solution, and I think he's founding this in the fathers, is that they, Old Testament peoples did not know Christ per se, but they knew him implicitly when they know that they have a need for a Redeemer, and a little bit more explicitly when Israel starts talking about a Messiah. And so man's recognition that he is a sinner is already an appeal to God. It's already a disposition in grace to God. So if you talk about the, the, the intellectual aspect of it, there is that preamble, that disposition to belief. If you talk about the moral aspect, there is that docility and that openness to grace that comes from recognition of one being a sinner and in need of a redeemer. That's what justified in the, in the Old Testament. And so the distinction between the two is that the church teaches that baptism is absolutely certain. By the deed done, it is accomplished, to translate a Latin phrase on that. Ex opere operato. By the doing of the deed in the right way with water and uh, the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have the certainty of Christ's promise carried down through the centuries in the church that you have are justified and receive grace. That is the moment for the infusion of supernatural faith, hope, and charity in, in Catholic theology. That is the moment for the sanctifying grace, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the moral virtues, and, and so on. So the mechanics of it are different in that way, in what is given and how it's given explicitly in Christ. It's no less given because of Christ even under the Old Covenant. And Pope Pius IX makes this clear when speaking of the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady when he said that in anticipation of the redemption, she was conceived immaculately. You could say in anticipation of the redemption, Abraham was given justice as an adult man or the Jewish child because of the faith of their parents. The case of Mary, of course, is unique in that she was given it at the moment of conception. And, of course, Christ was inherently holy, so uh, at the moment of his incarnation, all holiness was present. So I, I think the mechanical, the explanation of the, the specifics of that were the same, but it, it revolves around Christ. You know, in the Old Covenant, you're looking forward to Christ, even in these obscure ways where Abraham, Isaiah, and others didn't have a full idea of who the Redeemer was or all of that. Nonetheless, they knew their dependence upon God who would redeem them. And in literal sense, God came down and redeemed them, and they got exactly what they were hoping for and looking for. And so do we, but we look back to Christ rather than forward. Thanks, George. We appreciate the phone call. Marie called in from upstate New York, and she wanted to know how does she convince someone that horrible sin isn't the norm and also the need for and benefits of confession? Well, I, I guess by horrible sin she means mortal sins. Um, we, we might debate how normative is it, it is, actually, but the point is that when we offend God in a serious matter, 
uh, we call that a grave sin. And so this breaks our relationship with God completely. And that breakage needs to be repaired, and only Christ can repair it. And we have the way in which Christ wants us to have it repaired, and that's by going to the church and confessing your sin and being absolved. Uh, and so in the case of a venial sin where we make a slight offense against God or neighbor, since we're asked to love God and love our neighbor, or injustice or whatever the case may be, uh, in those slight cases we turn again to God in prayer and, and he will give us the grace to rise up again. Not with mortal sin. It has to be that divine intervention of Christ, just as we described in the account of history that Christ had to come down and save it. And he left us the institution of the church and of the sacrament of reconciliation when he said to the apostles, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. And the church teaches in the retaining involves the necessity of oral confession of what you did. Otherwise, the priest would be saying, okay, I'm retaining yours and I'm retaining yours over here. No, he has to know what you did with enough specificity to say, I don't think you're really sorry. You're not really manifesting sorrow here. I'm not going to absolve you. And that's only possible through an act, and that has to be the act of confessing to a successor of the apostles, a bishop, or those whom they have called the presbyters, the priests, to assist them in that ministry. And that's why we have confession. And really quickly, Leonard watching on YouTube says, what is the church's take on fasting? I know that we during Lent we don't have meat on Fridays, but how about normal times like now? Uh, well, Fridays are a day of penitence. You can do meat, uh, abstain from meat. That's what a lot of people do, including myself. Uh, but you can also substitute. This is a, what's called an indult of permission, which our bishops obtained from, from, from Rome. So in the United States, we can do a substitution outside of Lent. Inside of Lent, it's meatless. We had a person when I entered the church who was a very learned theologian who came and spoke to our group, and somebody asked him, you know, do we, are we supposed to not eat meat throughout the entire year? And he was very soft-spoken, just a great guy, but he said, yeah, technically that's on the books. <laughs> and then he explained the nuance that you just explained. Uh, yeah. <laughs> on behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener, Matt Kubinski, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it on Monday. Until we get together then, have a great weekend, and God bless.